Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. In today's episode, we're going to be talking all about AI, machine learning, and putting that in the context of financial services. So you've probably heard those terms and the technology has quote unquote been around for a while now, but what's it actually doing for financial services? And in what aspects does it make the most difference? And how do we avoid AI inheriting some human biases? But before we start, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS and hear a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Alrighty, thank you so much to our sponsors. Let's get started. As always, I am not alone. And to dig into this, we are joined by some incredible guests. Uh, making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Amanda Curry, who is postdoctoral researcher at the Bocconi University in Milan and the co-host of the podcast, Let's Chat Ethics. How are you doing today, Amanda? All right, thank you. Good, good. Thank you so much for being here. Could you tell us a little bit about your research and your podcast, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my PhD in natural language processing, which is the part of AI that deals with language and human language and, you know, being able to understand and produce language. And my podcast is all about ethics in, in tech. And I co-hosted with one of my friends, Oriana. Um, and the idea is to have two viewpoints. So I'm sort of on the technical side and she's coming from a, a philosophy side. I love that combo. Um, and so often we find ourselves there with this subject. Uh, joining Amanda, making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Teddy Flo, who's General Counsel at Zest AI. How are you doing today, Teddy? Great. Thank you for bringing us together. You're very, very welcome. Can you tell us about Zest AI and what you guys are working on? At Zest AI, we are pioneering the use of machine learning in underwriting consumer loans in the United States. Um, I'm the general counsel, so I handle government relations, legal, compliance, and I sometimes wash dishes. Uh, and so I've been enjoying my time at Zest. Before that, I was a consumer financial services lawyer at a law firm for uh, more than a decade, uh, where I focused on the areas that Zest AI is working on. And, and definitely uh, hard to underwrite and uh, treat customers fairly if you don't know what your uh, AI is doing, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd love to unpack all of that with you. And last but by no means least, uh, also making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Doral Blitz, who's VP of Strategy and Business Development over at Person Essex. How are you doing today, Doral? Hi, Simon. Nice to meet you. And thank you guys for having me here. You are very, very welcome. I remind everybody who Person Essex are and what you guys do. Uh, so, Personetics, we are an 11 years old growth fintech company. 
we are in production today uh, with over 60 banks in 28 markets uh, being perceived as the global category leader in AI-based uh, financial data-driven personalized engagement for financial services. Basically, we are helping uh, mostly banks all over the world to leverage their biggest asset, which is their own customers' financial transactional data in order to quickly drive a significant business impact and market differentiation. I love it. All right, guys. Well, let's get started then. Uh, what a panel we have and, and what are sort of subjects we can jump into. Um, but I, I wonder, uh, maybe Amanda, if you want to start us off, um, if we're talking about how AI and ML is going to change financial services, let's just start with some definitions. What is the difference between AI and ML? Like, unpack some of this for me. Let's just start here. So I guess for me, ML, which is machine learning, is a subset of, of AI, I guess it's sort of encompassed in that area. So if AI is very broadly trying to imbue, I guess, um, computers with actual intelligence, machine learning refers to, I guess, a set of, of algorithms where the idea is that instead of having to tell the machine what to do, you can sort of teach it through, through data, essentially. You can show it a lot of examples. Um, similar to the way that you don't define to a child what a dog is, but rather show the child a few dogs and then the, the child can sort of learn what a dog is. I, I really love the simplicity of that definition. It's just this constant showing and um, recognizing the patterns that appear there. Um, and I guess um, considering ML can generate and manage and make sense of data, um, Teddy, is there anything that you'd build on there in terms of how it actually works? Are there any principles we need to put in place in order for it to be effective? Yeah, so in financial services, you know, there are two key issues. One is bias, which you alluded to before. And, and, and data can be very biased, and ML can pick up biases in the data that exists. And so a couple of things that we do is we work first on the front end when we're building ML models to make sure that we're pulling in data that is as unbiased as possible. And then in the back end, we actually try to teach the ML models that our clients use in production uh, to make consumer loans. We try to teach them to be less biased after they've already been constructed. And then I'd add one, I'd add one other footnote uh, that in financial services in the United States, especially in the underwriting space, we can't use continuously learning models. So a lot of ML models will learn continuously. So every time they get new data, they adjust and keep learning. Uh, to underwrite consumer loans, that's illegal in the United States. And so our models, once they learn from a set of data, they have to be locked down, and then they can be taught to relearn later and open back up. So that would be one other thing that, that it's important to flag, at least um, for the underwriting piece of, of ML in the U.S., Yeah, some complications there as well. And I think we're going to unpack some more of that later in the show. But nice foreshadowing, Teddy, if I may say. Um, Doral, I want to ask you a, a question, because whenever somebody brings up AI and ML in financial services, I hear about chatbots. But to you, what is what is AI used in financial services for? What are the main use cases and, and, uh, and what impact can we have? So I think the main use cases from our perspective as Personetics as a global leader is really the ability to use AI machine learning models to deeply access and analyze financial transactional data, which is basically the biggest asset of any bank, right? Uh, we are mostly relying as Personetics on the last six months 
historical financial transactional data, which banks are mostly holding or even providing to their customers when they are logging in. But it requires a lot of capabilities to deeply clean, analyze, categorize, enrich, and truly understand in real, in real time on a personalized level the financial map of each one of the customers, past, present, and also the ability to predict the, the, the future in terms of cash flow up to a month in advance. That requires a lot of algorithms and capabilities to do that. Once you are able to do that, the next step is the ability to drive hyper-personalized touch with the customers through any kind of channel or even to empower financial advisors or relationship managers with a set of personalized insights, alerts, recommendations, product-based advice, even automated self-adjustable financial wellness programs and adapt over time according to the customer's reaction. So there's a lot of mechanisms here to drive the highest level of proactive, smart, financial data-driven, personalized engagement with the customers. It starts with the fundamental of analyzing and understanding at the highest level financial transactional data and then to proactively and smartly engage with customers and, of course, to use cell phone mechanisms, relevancies, dependencies, and other systems and algorithms to adopt over time, providing the customers the relevant, proactive relationship. Basically, the whole idea is to help banks to move from a transactional banking passive approach into a smart, proactive, knowledgeable engagement with their customers, moving the customers from FOMO, fear of missing out, into JOMO, joy of missing out, where finally customers can sit back and relax and the banks are capable of fulfilling the social contract and customers' expectations to help them to achieve their own financial goals. It's interesting, isn't it? We used to have branch managers who would know you and personalize to you. And we still do have people in branches that do a lot of that stuff. And the advantage was because they knew you, they could recommend things to you or guide you in in really interesting ways. And so that personalization is one big theme. And I think, Teddy, you talked about um, underwriting as another big theme. But I just want to lay these out on the table before we, we build on that point. So Definitely around personalization, definitely around kind of underwriting better. Amanda, are there other big parts of um, financial institutions and, and how they operate that you're seeing use cases in um, across everything that banks do beyond personalization and beyond the underwriting piece? Um, I guess for me, the obvious thing that I've seen a lot is, as you mentioned, chatbots, and that's that my area of, of expertise. So when I said I did natural language processing, I specifically focused on um, chatbots and these virtual assistants. Um, and I think that's one area where AI and machine learning specifically can have a huge impact in how well they, they work and how they're able to personalize. I think like, um, Dora was saying, they actually, and like you were saying, these branch managers could be eventually be substituted by these chatbots in a way. Yeah, and I imagine as well as I look at um, fraud prevention and detecting uh, anti-money laundering and transaction monitoring and a lot of the operational side of what a bank has to do and uh, a lot of wherever there is data, you could start to think about really interesting use cases. Teddy, you wanted to jump in there. I wanted to ask actually a question, if I can, of Amanda and Doral. How do you feel the AI performs from a consistency perspective as opposed to a human? 
You know, I could imagine, you know, when Edna, the bank teller, is having a bad day, she treats her customers perhaps a little bit less courteously than she might. Uh, or, you know, or when Carl, the loan officer, you know, just had a rough night before he's denying loans at a higher rate. Does AI perhaps behave more consistently than humans? Do you see that in your work? Um, so this is the real, yes, absolutely, yes. I mean, we, um, again, because we are a global leader, and as I said, in production, with over 60 banks in 28 markets, we have been tested on a daily basis by so many technology teams, compliance, risk management, regulation, and so on and so forth. And we are showing what the what are the true in production, you know, market capabilities of AI and machine learning can help banks to better serve, to better understand their own customers, and then to proactively um, engage with them and to better sell and to better service. So yes, there is a consistency, but in any case. Still today, uh, 2021, those algorithms are still being treated as a decision support system and not by actually replacing a human being. So even when we are uh, implementing our solutions within the existing CRM systems of banks and helping you know, our relationship managers or bankers or call center agents or financial advisors to actually, um, you know, uh, boost their productivity and to foster a deeper and meaningful relationship with their clients, these systems are still supporting the human being and not actually replacing them um, as an overall. And I think that's the right combination that we are seeing in specific uh, use cases. And I think that sort of it's not an uh, it's not an or it's an and is a really interesting sort of key point to to remember. In many of these cases, we want a bit of a best of both rather than um, just kind of flipping from from one to the other. Um, I, I'm interested, Teddy, in your view on sort of the prerequisites to use the technology well. So specifically in loan underwriting, for instance, I can imagine sort of dropping that in is valuable. But you mentioned sort of um, having access to the data being able to retrain the model despite what you said about the the kind of the the timing of that um, how important is it for uh, when these things are created that the customers have good data priorities good access to data or can they buy in sort of the the capabilities you talk about at zest ai who've sort of done some of that stuff for them and you're not as reliant on on their underlying platforms that's a great question and I would add a couple of couple of answers there. One is, and the reason I asked my question before is one of the things that we see is that the AI models are actually able to take bias out of the decision making. You know, in America anyway, you know, we have a history where, you know, where a person of color might walk into a bank and sit across the table from a white loan officer and be denied credit. Um, and that's part of our history, which we are trying to overcome. And what we're able to see is that the AI models that we produce help take some of that bias out of the process um, by basically giving a much more objective picture of the borrower's risk profile uh, that doesn't take into account the color of a person's skin or their accent or anything like that. So I think that's a critical element. Um, a critical element is that reduction of bias and the fact that it's easier to do in a machine than in a human. I'd say the second thing is one of the reasons when our customers, when they, when they deploy machine learning models that we build for them, they see enormous increases in approval rates, sometimes a 15% increase 
in approval rates for people across the board with no increase in risk. They also sometimes see 30% decreases in loan losses with no decrease in approval rates. And so the AI models that we produce give um, banks the ability to reduce losses without reducing approvals or increase profit without uh, taking on any additional risk. And the reason for that is that AI models can just consume so much more data at once. You know, if I were trying to get a picture of Amanda, for example, and, and, and using 15 variables, you know, that gives me one blurry sort of image. But if I could take in 300 variables or 1,000 variables, I'd get a much better picture of her as a credit risk. And so that's what AI models allow our customers to do. Uh, and then I would say uh, on the data point, in the United States, um, we have what's called the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which limits the sources of data that can be used to make a, an underwriting decision for consumer loans. And so all of the data that we use to train our models and that we use, that our models use in making decisions are, are all FICRA compliant, FCRA, FICRA compliant data uh, sources. So there are some limits there, at least on the underwriting side, that perhaps maybe Doral and Amanda uh, don't necessarily have to use uh, in their own modeling exercises. Amanda, how about you? To build on Teddy's points, is there anything that you need as a prerequisite if you're a financial institution or anybody else to, to use AI and machine learning well? What do you have to be able to do well? I think you need to be able to, I guess, really understand what's happening and be very transparent. I think we're very quick to jump into using this new technology because it sounds exciting. Um, but a lot of the times, maybe there are simpler ways to do it or sort of, I guess, what I would say is really have thought what the possible benefits of it really are and uh, to consider really carefully the data that you have so that you make sure that it's a proper representation of what's actually going to be your deployment um, setting. And yeah, I, I think that's probably the, the most important thing to have a thorough understanding of the, the point of employing the AI in this case. If I can jump in there, Amanda, that's such an important point is the explainability piece. Um, you know, using AI models without proper explainability in the United States anyway is illegal. Um, you can't make it. If you deny a consumer credit in America, you have to tell them why. Uh, and if you can't explain what the AI model is doing in human understandable terms, uh, you can't use it, at least in, in the underwriting pieces of financial services. And so, you know, that's what Zest AI pioneered. We pioneered Ex true explainability for AI that could run in real time. So you could make a lending decision in one second and get the, the results, the reasons why that decision was made in another second. And we're actually talking milliseconds here. And that's really important to be able to use it and use it well, at least in financial services. I think that's so key, isn't it? Remembering that we are in a regulated industry and there are rules around a lot of this stuff. Um, Doral, I'm going to come to you for a second, uh, just sort of changing gears slightly. I mean, you've talked about, I think, uh, a couple of times now, some of the benefits of personalization, some of the benefits of, of working with a platform like that. So I think I think we understand those. But there's this term um, out there uh, called self-driving finance. Do you just want to explain for our audience what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Our vision is to really to actualize or to strive to actualize a world of self-driving finance where we believe, as I said, that banks should fulfill 
those social contracts and customer expectations and to actually proactively act on behalf of their customers to better monetize the relationship value. So basically what I'm saying is that I want my bank to help me to better manage my financial life, to stay on top of my finance, to help me to automatically even achieve my financial goals and dreams and needs. And in order to do so, my bank should deeply and holistically know me and not just my, my finances, not just my tra- banking transactions, also my pensions plans, also my investments, my trading, uh, my other bank accounts in other places. And by truly understand me and to analyze, my bank should be there for me, again, just to help me to automatically achieve financial goals. Now, it's like a lever or a shift in your car. It can be manual. It can be automated for all sorts of customers, for all sorts of needs and and capabilities. But I think uh, the trend is completely becoming a global market standard. What is the role that banks should take in their customers' financial life and how they should monetize this brand value? And we believe that autonomous finance or self-driving finance, very similar to self-driving cars where there are like five steps, we believe there are very similar steps that banks would have to take in order to better sell and to better service their own customers, to differentiate themselves in the market and to achieve the highest lifetime value uh, or loyalty with their customers. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really good blog called fintechtakes.com. Um, and Alex, the, the author of that, Alex Johnson, uh, actually wrote a blog piece that looks at the five levels of autonomy of a car and then compared that with the five levels of autonomy in financial services. And I think that's a really good mental model. Um, my co-founder, Jason, often talks about um, the, having the private banker in your pocket having that uh, sort of somebody that would be there working for you, helping you get achieve your outcomes and your goals um, and doing it, then also taking the admin off of you. So it's not just helping you see around corners and see the future. It's removing that administrative burden that you would have in order to execute some of this stuff um, and things just good stuff just happening. Like you had a, a, a waiter or a, or a good butler sort of taking care of all of that for you. What a great place to be. And I think what a great goal to have. Well, listen, um, I'm going to pause us here whilst we hear from our sponsors, and then I'm excited to come back into this from from another couple of perspectives just after the break. So uh, we'll take a very quick pause, and we'll be back shortly. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the industry's most open, API-driven, low-code platform for hyper-accelerating embedded finance applications. WaveMaker delivers a rich, drag-and-drop visual studio that fintechs, brands, and financial institutions use for rapidly composing serious banking and financial services apps. Developers can easily consume APIs and build in an enterprise-grade environment, leverage custom pre-built components with APIs, logic, and UI, or even build out complete embedded finance journeys that your customers can extend or customize. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. 
Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Alrighty, thank you so much to our sponsors as always. Um, we touched in the first half of the show a little bit on all things bias, but let's double click on that because it is so important as you pointed out, Teddy. Um, obviously, when building AI and ML, there is this huge risk of bias um, and we all have bias and you talked about some of the ways we can work hard to ensure that AI is fair and doesn't discriminate. And it, at very least, it's consistent and it should be explainable. Um, but actually, what else can we do? How do we keep our AI up to date? How do we make sure that we're um, working with in lending? People have very differentiating circumstances that affect their credit. How how do I how do I become subjective? How do I know I'm becoming subjective in that decision? Um, in in financial services in the United States, there's this concept called the adverse impact ratio. Um, And what we look at there is to see how one group of people is treated relative to another. So if what we might say is that African-Americans, for example, at this particular financial institution are approved for loans at 60% the rate of white people, or women are approved at 80% the rate of men, for example. And so that's the metric that we pay attention to, to see how the model is performing from an outcomes perspective. Because at the end of the day, that's really what matters for consumers is outcomes. If a person of color goes to a bank, if a woman goes to a bank, are they getting the same outcomes as white folks or men or what have you? That's sort of what we look at uh, in the United States anyway, uh, to see if the models are behaving in a biased way. And so what Zest has done is we've pioneered a way of actually taking a model, looking at the adverse impact ratio of that model, so seeing how it treats different groups of people, and then retuning the model so it treats people more fairly, so that it approves black folks at the same rate as white folks or women at the same rate as men. And we try to do that without allowing the model to become less accurate in making risk predictions about a particular borrower. And what's really tricky in the United States is that you cannot, the model that's making lending decisions cannot actually directly consider race. Uh, And so the race or gender or protected status of a particular borrower. And so that's, so we use this adversarial training method. We have two models that we build, one that's actually going to make the decisions in real time, but the other one that's like a teacher model that helps teach the, the real one how to be more fair. And so to answer your question, uh, you know, there's this complex set of issues that all kind of come together when you're trying to be fair and underwriting consumer loans. Uh, and, and we've tried to solve them all in one, uh, with one technology. Powerful. Um, Amanda, I want to come to you and talk about, especially when I guess when it's in natural language processing, how does geography or cultural difference start to impact bias? Do, you know, can it impact it? Yeah, of course. So um, obviously language use is very different across uh, countries, for example, you know, in the the US and the UK. Um, And there are very specific applications of NLP that, for example, um, one of uh, my colleagues right now, I'm actually working on a project about incorporating demographic factors into NLP. And um, my colleagues here at Bocconi have shown that, for example, um, a translation app works much better when it knows. So 
uh, Google will make you sound like your father, for example. Um, but also something like detecting hate speech online. Um, if something is trained on American data, it won't work as well on British data because obviously you have different languages. Or if we look at in terms of, of race, these sort of hate speech detection tools, for example, tend to um, give a lot of false positives when you're talking about African-American vernacular English. Um, that Meaning that it tends to label it as abusive or offensive much more often than it does sort of standard English or um, other varieties of English. And I think that's where context is so important um, because who's speaking to whom and under in, in what context um, is, is so different to you know, something that might be um, absolutely acceptable, if not relationship reaffirming amongst very close friends of a certain cultural heritage could be absolutely opposite if it's just a, a random uh, cross-cultural sort of explosion um, in, in a different context online amongst strangers. And that's, that context is so, so hard to, to really manage and deal with. Um, Doral, is there anything that you want to add on top of the, the bias conversation we're having so far that, that you've learned over at Person Ethics? Yeah, I think the proof is in the pudding. I mean, in the end of the day, uh, financial institutions are going after the business, the business case, the business impact. And in parallel, uh, they are subjected to so many regulations. And, and, and that's why we as, as, as personetics, we are providing an open, flexible, agile engagement platform. So banks by themselves can have the tools and the capabilities to test by themselves our algorithms. They can even uh, connect their internal developments with our with our systems. Uh, one example for is a, a Bank of Montreal, BMO, uh, one of the largest banks in Canada. They created their own cash flow prediction model and uh, connected that with our other algorithms of data categorization, data enrichment, uh, proactive engagement with customers and tested that by themselves to make sure that there is no any kind of bias with their cash flow predictions. So we as a company, we are able uh, to complement internal capabilities. We are providing additional tools, additional capabilities, um, and we are working with our AI teams and the banks teams in order to keep measuring and keep adapting over time with the technologies. We're also providing a rich uh, capabilities around um, measurement tools. So we are leveraging, as an example, Microsoft Power BI, which I think it's a quite impressive BI tools to keep track and keep measure customers' reaction, keep doing all sorts of reverse engineering uh, and feedback loops to make sure that there is no any kind of bias and the technology is still up to date with customers' Reaction. I mean, today we are touching over 1% of the world population. So it means that you need a lot of capabilities to keep measuring and tracking customers' reaction and that your algorithms are able to support different cultures, different languages, different reactions, um, and different products of banks to provide these hyper-personalized engagements and touch. 
It's interesting how um, consistently, like machine learning itself, seems to happen very, very quickly by learning and being trained. But also, the way you measure it is then just looking at the outcomes. To Teddy's point, and consistently going over the top of it. So it's almost like you've got the three layers. You've got the, uh, as you talked about, Teddy, the um, the first, the main model the teacher model, but also the humans who are acting as a teacher and looking at the outcomes and making sure that it, it remains consistent over over and above that. And that layering, I think, seems really, really key and really, really crucial in using and being evidence first. If I might even add another layer, is the data itself is often contains bias sort of embedded in it, the, the data that's used to train these models. And this isn't a problem that's unique to machine learning. Uh, existing modeling techniques for credit underwriting often produce disparate outcomes for different groups of people. And so I, I do want to put a pin in that uh, bias in ML is, is an issue, and it's an issue that we have a, a social responsibility to tackle. That's why Zest has invested so much time and money doing it. But it's an issue that is much broader than AI and ML, and it's something that has gone ignored, I think, for quite some time. So I just might add that that the data element uh, often contains and embeds historical bias in it. And um, that's something that AI and ML is actually supremely well-equipped to tackle, um, even more so than, than older modeling methods. Because we're focusing on the outcome, not just the data itself that we're learning from. Um, we know what historically a good um, sort of credit file looked like, but that might not be the only type of good credit file. We're trying to improve those outcomes and we're trying to get better. So we almost have to, yes, use that data, but also not rely on it entirely and, and kind of um, build, build those together. I think that's a super powerful point. Um, Amanda, um, you mentioned sort of uh, other industry use cases. I really like the one um, sort of mentioned in my show notes here about Compass. Um, can you give uh, some examples there of where uh, bias in AI and ML has gone wrong? Yeah, of course. So Compass is, I think, the uh, most well-known example. And this was a software that was meant to predict the risk that somebody would uh, commit a crime again. So people who had already been arrested for a crime. And it was uh, famously shown to give high risks to um, Black and Hispanic people. Um, but there have been yeah lots of other examples. So... I think it was a couple of years ago, Amazon built a software to sort of sort through CVs and then they found that it was extremely sexist. And so it only allowed male um, potential employees into tech jobs, uh, whereas women were pointed towards um, like secretarial jobs and things like that, uh, which is, is terrible. And um, other examples that we're seeing now, and it, this is quite a big problem now in, in natural language processing is these large language models that we have that have also learned these embedded biases. So if you, for example, translate she is a doctor to a genderless language like Turkish and then translate back into English, it will translate it as he is a doctor, um, whereas it would, only, it would predict a nurse for, for a woman. Um, and similarly, it associates other um, traditionally male or stereotypically male things with with men uh, rather than women and so you can see how this these language models that are used really in pretty much all downstream tasks in in NLP um when they have these biases already embedded in them then you're going to have uh, major problems with with that 
Indeed, indeed. It's that bias is embedded in the data that consistently seems to be the, the thing. And bias is embedded in society itself, of course. Um, and, and then the, the cross-cultural, cross-society challenges of some of that um, is, is really, really interesting when you, you get into it. Um, Teddy, I'm going to come to you on this one. Do customers themselves need to know what AI does and how the ML works? Or are there other sets of responsibilities that lenders and others have in this space that they need to be aware of? I think that's that's such a great question and such a good call out. A lot of lenders today have outsourced their decisioning to um, industry-wide scores or commercial players like FICO or, or credit bureaus. And they just sort of say, hey, what, what's the risk of this consumer? And, and they just take it and use it and make a decision. That's sort of the paradigm today in a lot of parts of the underwriting business in the United States. But regulations actually require a bit more. Um, one is the lender should really know how the model works. And so at Zest, we auto-generate this like 100-page document that explains the ins and outs of everything about the model, every variable, how important it is, how it's considered in the decision. So the first is really understanding the nitty-gritty of how that model works and how it's going to treat consumers. The second is about, in America, we call it fair lending. Um, and that is making sure that, that people of color and women are treated fairly in, in credit assessments. And l- lenders have a responsibility to look at those outcomes um, and make sure that they're being fair and complying with law. And so those are, I think, the two biggest areas. One is sort of understanding the model risk, uh, and the second is understanding the fair lending outcomes. I really love that combination. Um, listen, considering the widespread use of AAI in financial services, I want to know how far we can actually take it from where we are. Let's let's look into the future a little bit. It's crystal ball time. Doral, you outlined a really interesting self-driving finance um, kind of worldview. Um, how do, what are the steps we need to take to get from that? If we were going to use our um, sort of self-driving five, five levels of automation model, where are we at and where do we need to get to? I think... The next step is not just the ability of banks to become this real-time, cool friend, trusted advisor that provides hyper-personalized insights, alerts, recommendations, or product-based advice. It's really, as I said, the next step of the ability of the banks or the, the technology or the combination of both of them to anticipate customers' financial needs and act in behalf of them. So this is really moving into almost an invisible bank where the bank is becoming, um, you know, help me as, as a seamless or even frictionless, helping me to automatically achieve my own financial goals and needs without even asking me for that. So my bank can anticipate and understand uh, my cash flow in, a, in real time, hyper-personalized, combining so many data sources, internal and external, together, and then helping me to automatically, for example, save for the future, or cut a debt, or maybe invest. And I don't need, as a customer, to set up goals, or threshold, or time limit. My bank will do that for me. Now, we as Personetics already deploying that, those kind of capabilities, that we are calling them Personetics Act, we are already deploying that today in over 15 banks out of our 60 globally. And the numbers are super impressive. For example, RBC, the largest bank in Canada, we helped over 300,000 customers 
to automatically save over $225 a month. That's a huge amount of money. This is not keep the change. This is not small pocket money. It's not round the map. And this is completely automated. Customers only clicked once. One click, that's it. We have banks that are also using the power of open banking, like Ally Bank in the US, one of the largest digital banks. Customers can even connect their external bank accounts and our algorithms are able to identify safe to save in their external banking accounts. And only mm-hmm. when we think the time is right, our algorithms will move variable amounts of money from these external bank accounts into the Ally Bank higher yield saving accounts. And again, it's completely automated, completely frictionless and seamless, and the ability to really help customers, to, to, to delight customers and helping them with their goals, it's, it's what we are seeing becoming a standard. So it's, there are like three steps. You need to truly anticipate on a customer level how much they can actually afford to put aside that's the first step of algorithms. And then you need to transfer from internal or external funds using either variable or smart schedule transfers. And, and again, always protecting the customers. They will never go into overdraft. We are anticipating their cash flow. We can even move money back from their saving accounts back to the checking accounts. And the last part is to allocate money intelligently towards one or even multiple goals. Customers can even create virtual goals. We are calling that envelopes. So this is not just one time saving. Let's say you want to put a you want to put money aside for all sorts of things. A trip to Japan to buy a new car, maybe to uh, a, a new renovation to your house. Everything within the same saving account, multiple goals. We are helping customers to achieve. Sounds good, um, Doral. Thank you so much for for kind of outlining a vision of what we can already do. Um, I'm really keen, um, Amanda, as you look at it, to look at how far we can take AI. What are the current challenges and where do you think we're realistically going to be going in the next few years with this stuff in financial services? I mean, I think we still have a lot of challenges ahead, like uh, Doral was talking about a lot of uh, predicting of uh, future uses and potential uses. And I don't think we can underestimate how hard that's going to be. Um, I think the way that it's it needs to go in the future is right now to focus on transparency, right? There's so much AI happening in in the banking industry. And like Teddy was saying, you know, his company has a lot of transparency when it comes to the lenders, but what about the end consumer? How aware are they that their data is being used through uh, all these these loops of of AI and and machines? And um, I think also we need for that more education because I think the general public doesn't quite understand um, AI. And so, okay, if I tell you that your data has been put through a, a model to determine not necessarily dictate whether you will get any money, but to give some possibilities uh, is kind of meaningless, right? No, I think that's a a great point, Amanda. Although I always wonder, um, 
you know, from an explainability standpoint, um, do I need to know how Netflix works or do I need to know it's not causing me any damage? Um, do I need to know how my car works or do it, does it need to be safe to use? And I think there's like, how much is it education and how much is it sort of making sure we get the right guardrails in place? But it, it seems to me like there's still work to do there, as you say, Amanda, to, to make sure that that guardrail is there and in place and that people understand it. And I think that's a great point. So there's always a tension with these things, as you say, um, and I think that's going to be interesting. Um, Teddy, final word on this. What do you think we're going to see in the next few years as you look at your crystal ball? I think we're going to see a lot more use of AI in banking, especially in the underwriting space. The benefits to consumers and banks are just spectacular. And the costs and risks are getting smaller and smaller every day. And that's what we at Zest AI are working to do. Let's see more people adopting this stuff. Alrighty, well, that wraps up today's discussion. Can you believe how quickly it's gone? Thank you so much, um, everybody, for joining me. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, let's start with you, Amanda. So you can find me on Twitter at Karina Amanda, um, and there you can find a link to my podcast and to my work as well. So my podcast is Let's Chat Ethics. Let's Chat Ethics. Do check it out, people. Um, Teddy, how about you? Check us out at zest.ai. Uh, and you can look up uh, my LinkedIn profile, Theodore Flow, on LinkedIn. Thank you. Do check it out, people. And Doral. Um, of course, check it out, uh, personetics.com, or our very, uh, you know, impressive, I think, uh, LinkedIn uh, uh, page. We would love to speak with you and present our capabilities and how we can support you. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Um, if you like what you've heard, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us out. And it helps others find the show. Um, so please do leave us a review. And if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. And if you want to change or improve the show, what should we be covering? What are we missing? Send us an email, podcasts at 11FS.com. Alrighty, that's all for now. Goodbye. <laughs>